Thanks for listening to Valley Edition. I'm KVPR Content Director Alex Burke. And today, host Kathleen Schock and the KVPR News team are taking a break from the show. So instead, we're bringing you a bonus episode, a special hour of news coverage all about climate change. It comes from our partners at the California Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations from across the state. And the host, KVPR's own Carrie Klein. I'll let Carrie take it from here. California is vast. Forests, farmlands, deserts, the coast. People have built lives here, intimately tied to the land. But those lives and that land are changing as the climate changes. It's almost like it went from a theory of what could happen to it's happening and we kind of are trying to figure out what to do about it. We all have sort of a strength and capacity to keep going. So (laughs) that's really what you need to get through something as complicated as climate change. Some people don't like the words because a lot of it, I think, is a perceived threat. This is a California newsroom special, Climate Costs, the High Price of Climate Change for California Communities. I'm Carrie Klein with KVPR in Fresno. Stay tuned. This is a California newsroom special, Climate Costs, the High Price of Climate Change for California Communities. I'm your host, Carrie Klein from KVPR in Fresno. Often, maybe too often, California climate coverage focuses on our biggest cities. This hour, we'll spend time in rocky riverbeds and coastal strawberry fields, in the largest geothermal field in North America, and under the desert sun. We bring you to the communities and the people who are being asked to bear the costs of climate change, often with little support. This show is a special collaboration between newsrooms across California, where we've all been talking with our neighbors and our friends, people like Alex Cousins from the town of Weaverville in the northwestern corner of the state. Alex works in the local sawmill. You know, it used to be a land-based economy, you know, timber. It's moved, um, trying to make it somewhat of a recreational-based economy, building new mountain biking trails, taking advantage of the lake when there's water in it, uh, and the river, you know, fly fishing and salmon fishing. I kind of think it as a community, a place. We're not all going to the same church. We're not all going to the same school. We're not even in the same circle, but everybody who's there has a connection to the land. He points to wildfire and to drought and to the state's responsibility to balance the needs of now with the needs of tomorrow. Climate changed. It's already changed. We're already, it's, it's, we're there. And so I think now we need to just deal with what are we going to do today and what are we going to do 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, you know, so that our kids are happy. And it's not just Alex. Across the state, lives and livelihoods are under threat as climate change upends agriculture, energy, tourism, and a way of life. So we begin our show today by asking, what does the state have to offer? To find out, I called up Wade Crowfoot, Secretary of California's Natural Resources Agency. 
a lot of rural economies in California have continued to struggle. And that includes local governments. Targeted investment is required into California's rural community in the age of climate change. We've also heard from a number of small communities that they, they feel that they don't have, you know, the lobbying or grant writing resources that their big city counterparts do. I mean, so how do you how do you level the playing field for them? How can the state work to make sure that this process of, of securing money for these projects is equitable? We're actually making investments, implementing policies that benefit all Californians. And we recognize that these investments historically have been inequitably spread around California. Historically, some of the larger, uh, more wealthy local governments are more well positioned to compete for grants, for example. So we're working to redress this. And then are there unique challenges in how the state government relates to and can support tribal lands? We need to reconnect with tribal governments and communities in California. We need to strengthen tribal partnerships. We recognize that California tribes have been stewarding our land since time immemorial, and that it's this wisdom um, that we need as we face some of these most acute challenges from climate change. So we are focused on identifying where we can return lands to tribes that were part of ancestral territories, where we can create co-management agreements to share the stewardship of our natural resources, and where we can help build capacity for smaller tribes to actually play a, a greater role in the stewardship of these lands than they've been able to play in recent decades. How specifically is the state trying to prevent um, the adaptation to climate change from deepening already existing inequities that exist around the state? We need to protect all of California from the impacts of climate change, but we need to prioritize the protection of the most vulnerable communities. And if we do that, we not only address broadly climate resilience, but we tackle this problem of, of inequality inequity that we have in the state. As we move forward into the future here in California, you know, what are some efforts and initiatives that give you hope, um, you know, specifically uh, in rural California? I'm encouraged every week in my job because I see solutions that are being deployed on the ground across California, not only to reduce pollution and achieve our goal of carbon neutrality, in other words, a, an economy that can run without this carbon pollution, but also to protect people and nature from the impacts of climate change. We know that this challenge of catastrophic wildfires is not going away. And we know that there's more that we need to do across the different landscapes, including in the forest, to actually reduce small fires from becoming very large. So this includes uh, these fuel breaks I've talked about, but also ecologically based thinning projects that restore forest health. There are solutions happening across the state. It's just a matter of scaling them up and helping everybody participate. Well, Wade Crowfoot is California's Natural Resources Secretary. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you, Carrie. California officials pride themselves on being progressive when it comes to the environment. So it can be easy to forget that the state is still one of the top 10 oil producers in the country. And our richest oil fields are in the middle of the state in Kern County. And so as lawmakers in Sacramento start moving away from petroleum production, what will happen to the rural towns literally built on oil? I traveled to Kern to find out. 
It's a Friday night in Taft, a small city perched in the dusty hills southwest of Bakersfield. And there's a standoff in front of the old Fox Theater. Think cowboy boots and 10-gallon hats and a sheriff's posse wearing gold stars. Make sure, let's make sure those guys ain't sneaking in on us anywhere around here. They might the tension builds, and then... The bullets are blank, of course, and the whole shootout is a game. It's a preview, in fact, of an Old West-themed festival that happens here in October. Brian Selman's playing the sheriff. But it's just a really good time for everybody to get together and promote the town's history and the uh, oil industry. The festival is called Oil Dorado because 100 years ago, this city was built on top of Midway Sunset, the state's most productive oil field. And today, the economy is still built on oil. Walk down the street from Black Gold Brewing Company and you'll hit monuments of drilling equipment on every corner and a replica pump jack outside the Best Western. Locals feel everything here owes its existence to the stuff. It made me who I am. I grew up here. Oil raised my family, gave me an education. It's in your toothbrush, it's in your floss, in your basketballs, in your soccer balls. Oil means everything. Oil is a way of life. That's public relations expert Chris Lowe, dental hygienist Julie Ortlieb, and Josh Bryant, a city council member and school district executive, all downtown for the show. But the future of oil is murky. In order to reduce climate forcing emissions, Governor Gavin Newsom has promised no in-state oil and gas production, period, by 2045. And locals are worried, including Renee Hill. Taft is very upset by what's going on in Sacramento. Hill used to be on the city council. Now she sells antiques and flowers on the main drag. She loves this town of 9,000. I'm a Taft girl. My dad was a doctor here. I grew up here. But a future without oil? That might be progress for the climate, but it's hard for Hill to imagine. Taft will shrivel. I mean, I can't fathom what we'll do for ourselves. It's not just the billions of dollars in county revenue, the tens of thousands of well-paying jobs, or even the millions in oil property taxes that fund Taft schools. Standing at a massive bronze statue of an oil derrick downtown, Taft Mayor Dave Knorr points out that oil companies support community events and workers mentor high school students. The producers and the companies that are a part of it are much more than employers. They're community partners and they have their fingerprints on every beneficial program that takes place in this valley as well as in this community. Many feel California needs the industry going forward, including Les Clark who, let's just say, isn't very fond of Newsom. I call him Governor Newsom's. He's a longtime oil man in Taft who now leads the Independent Oil Producers Alliance. I don't like it, rhetoric. I think it's a foolishness for people to think that they're going to do away uh, with fossil fuel. Fred Holmes, the owner of a small oil producer, argues that ditching California's petroleum is just nimbyism. We'll be exporting the industry, he says, to countries with fewer environmental protections and civil rights. Us citizens, including yourself, we're not going to give up our energy. Are you going to give up your energy? (laughs) No, you're going to support Saudi Arabia. Did you know Kern is also the state's largest producer of renewables? It's home to a quarter of our solar and more than half of our wind power. But as Noor told me later from his office, those solar and wind farms just don't create as many jobs as oil and gas. That lip service about replacing the jobs that are being lost is just that. It's lip service. Those jobs and the economic impact to local communities are just as intermittent as the energy they produce. 
You're listening to the California Newsroom special, Climate Costs. Coming up... That's a big, a big question mark, whether we have any water at all. Stay tuned. I'm Carrie Klein, and you're listening to Climate Costs, the high price of climate change for California communities. Poet Denise Levertov wrote of California's persistent beauty, no green more brilliant than unmown grass and wild miners' lettuce. She also called California a fragile paradise, and a warming climate certainly makes fragile California's farmland. Oppressive heat is familiar to farm workers, including Maria in the eastern Coachella Valley. Maria didn't share her last name because she was worried it would affect her job. She said everything that comes with the heat that affects you, it gives you respiratory problems. Climate change means more dangerously hot days that hit some communities harder than others. Here's Jose Pablo Ortiz Partida from the Union of Concerned Scientists. He spoke to my colleague, Kathleen Schock. From my perspective, we need almost everyone to jump into the same boat. And many communities are being left behind. And these are the communities that are in the front lines of climate change and the ones that need the most help. Growers, too, are struggling, including Joe Del Bosque near Fresno. This year we had to cut back on our acreage of melons. We basically took our asparagus out of the program completely. Next year we don't know what's going to happen with water. That's a big, a big question mark, whether we have any water at all. Severe drought means less water to grow almonds, oranges, pistachios, and also the grapes that feed California's $40 billion wine market. Ray Smith is a winemaker in Paso Robles. His label is Indigene Cellars. Climate change, uh, it's changed the type of varietals that grow prominently in areas because of the lack of water. You know, more aggressive sunshine, more heat days lean towards a lot more grapes that are thicker skin because of the heat and that would produce well with not a massive amount of water, dry farmed. Also, you know, alternatives and, and what you could do with grapes and unfortunate situations like, um, like fires, like wildfires. It got guys like me to be super creative with rosés, Provence-style rosés, because it's almost like it's the only thing that you could do with the grapes, you know, minimum skin contact and make a super good rosé 
to avoid smoke taint or the effects of smoke. I'm a Pinot guy. No, even though Paso Robles is not known for its Pinot Noir because it's not the climate. I source from different areas that I think make exceptional Pinots. And I'm excited all the time about the opportunity to be able to get these grapes, bring them back here, make them, and show some exceptional wines in my area, even though I don't have the luxury of growing them. And um, I don't know how much longer that's sustainable or how much longer that's going to happen, you know, under the conditions of water. Because the climate change has changed significantly. And it's almost like it went from a theory of what could happen to it's happening. And we kind of are trying to figure out what to do about it. Heat and drought and wildfire aren't the only climate threats to California farms. Near the coast, there's also rising sea level. From our member station KAZU in the Monterey Bay, Erica Mahoney explains. In the Pajaro Valley, fruit and vegetable fields roll in neat rows from the hills down to the sea. This is where Meredith Goebel, who's a geophysics fellow at Stanford University, studied the problem of seawater intrusion. Someone who has a well right on the coast, you might be seeing the salt level in the water you're pumping increasing over time, probably to a point where you can't use that water anymore. Water stored in aquifers underground has long nourished crops in the Pajaro Valley. But over time, growers and people have pulled more water out than has come in. And that leaves space for salty seawater to creep in, which is why the community formed a water agency to help. Yes, welcome. Welcome to Pajaro Valley Water Management Agency. Brian Lockwood is the general manager. The walls in his office are lined with photos that show the valley's deep farming history. After World War II, it was predominantly apples, and now we're seeing a lot more things like uh, strawberries. You can find produce from here like Driscoll strawberries and Martinelli's apple juice in grocery stores around the country. But for all the crops, they're short on water. So the agency has developed extra water sources to reduce groundwater pumping and slow down seawater intrusion. Along the coast, there's a 22-mile system of pipes that carries recycled water and water from the Harkins Slough, a wetland that includes a pond at the end of a dirt road. This is the Harkins Slough recharge basin. Ducks ride wind-whipped waves. The pond alone holds enough water to cover 45 football fields. But below our feet is a shallow aquifer, an underground sponge of sand that can hold a lot more. Getting it in the ground is, is important to achieving sustainable resources. The agency is working on two more water projects to feed thirsty farms. That work costs tens of millions of dollars. The sea will continue to rise. Increasing temperatures will continue to stress crops. But still, Lockwood says he's optimistic. Humans are a creative bunch, so we don't have an easy road, you know, but I feel confident that we will find ways to continue producing crops in, in the Pajaro Valley for the long term. It's not just this valley. Agricultural communities along the Central Coast have to get creative fast. In the Pajaro Valley, I'm Erica Mahoney. Getting creative fast comes up over and over again when talking to people who work in agriculture. But the words you may not hear as much? Climate change, especially here in the Central Valley. 
And just south of where I am, in Visalia, a school board recently had a heated debate over whether or not to include the term climate change in the curriculum. My name is Randy Viegas. I originally grew up in Bakersfield, California, but I now live here in Visalia. I am 27 years old. I am a school board member for the Visalia Unified School District, representing Area 6, and I'm a professor here at College of the Sequoias. We had a board policy that was coming up for revision in which a few of the trustees wanted to amend this policy to eliminate the word climate change and change it to environmental change or some other language. They believed that climate change was only a theory, that it wasn't factual, that it was opinionated, etc. Whereas other members of the board, including myself, uh, argued that it has been widely accepted by scientists, by scholars, by educators, uh, and that's reflected in the curriculum and textbooks and that we needed to use the proper language. Um, And so prior to me coming onto the board, the decision was sort of deadlocked at a 3-3 tie, and I was able to act as a tiebreaker when this came back around. Our community, particularly here in the Central Valley, is and is going to be one of the most affected communities as a result of climate change. I would point to just not even, you know, within the last 10 years that we experienced a drought here in California, there was actual communities here in Tulare County, specifically in Porterville, where they ran out of water. They did not have water. Individuals had to have uh, bottled water shipped. We had trailers out there so individuals could shower. These are real issues that impact people on a daily basis that are not only costing them in terms of their health, but financially. Um, In addition to water, we think about air quality here in the Central Valley and the fact that we have extremely high rates of asthma and cancer. Uh, I don't think that climate change is, is something that's negotiable or that, you know, is a question of fact. I think um, some people don't like the words because a lot of it, I think, is a perceived threat, right? Um, or knowing a family member who perhaps works in an industry like in oil and gas or in agriculture and feeling threatened that that individual's job or livelihood may be impacted. I don't think It's a reason to deny facts, but I do believe that it's even more of a reason for us to come together and unite around demanding a just transition from the state to say, if you are going to enact these policies, we're on board, but you have to ensure that people are gonna be taken care of. People are gonna have access to these jobs, uh, that people are gonna have access to livable wages, that people are gonna have access to opportunities that come with this transition, and it's not going to just come in and obliterate local economies in the Central Valley. And I'm a strong believer that the best solutions are rooted in community members themselves. And so uh, there tends to be, you know, unfortunately, sometimes this sort of top-down approach in in which leaders and experts may have ideas and solutions, but without directly communicating and engaging with those on the ground and their own potential ideas and solutions, um, I think there's going to be a disconnect in in the way in which community members actually access these resources uh, or the transition that it takes. Next, we travel south to the Cuyama Valley, due east of Santa Barbara. The majority of what's being grown in the Cuyama Valley, or what has been since the mid-80s, is carrots. M. Johnson runs the Blue Sky Center, which is helping the community plan for a future less dependent on water and carrots. So if we're talking about environmental sustainability at the state level, we absolutely cannot leave rural places out of the equation because they're already coming up with self-resilient strategies because they have to. Like that's the nature of being so small, which policy, yes, and money, yes, like there's roles for that, but there also is roles for looking at 
hyper-local strategies for resilience and when it comes to sustainability. And what I love about living here is that, like, no matter what, it feels like we all have sort of a strength and capacity to keep going. So <laughs> that's really what you need to get through something as complicated as climate change, you know? <laughs> Big rigs rumble across the state, many to and from the Inland Empire, where acres and acres of orange groves have been replaced by warehouses that can be measured in football fields. The Inland Empire is the main vein of logistics for the West Coast. That's Jonathan Linden, a reporter at KVCR in San Bernardino. By some estimates, 40% of the country's consumer goods funnel through here. All those warehouses mean jobs, but also all those trucks, and with them, smog-forming pollution. We caught up with Jonathan near his old middle school. It's been almost 12 years since I graduated from Amelia Earhart. Um, this was just an empty field. Uh, there wasn't anything on this plot. What you see now is this, right across from me, we see this UPS, one million square foot warehouse. Neighboring to that is another million square foot a warehouse that is operated by Amazon. And also neighboring those uh, warehouses is another warehouse that's under development. It's something that's happening across the entire Inland Empire region. It's a region that has some of the dirtiest air in the country, as Jonathan himself has experienced. Growing up here in Riverside, I was actually a participant in this study called the USC Children's Air Study. And they actually came to my school every single year, uh, starting in first grade, where they would do these breathing tests. I would blow into this machine because they were trying to see how the air was affecting our lungs. Climate scientists expect ozone and air pollution will keep getting worse as heat rises. And that heat is putting pressure on all of our landscapes, including our deserts. Cameron Barrows is a research ecologist at the Center for Conservation Biology at UC Riverside. Climate change is happening faster in deserts than it is anywhere else ever. I mean, anywhere at all. The animals and plants that live here are adapted to being hot and dry, but they're also probably fairly close to the physiological limits of what an animal and plant can live in. So if it gets hotter and drier, they may be the first ones to show us what those impacts are going to be. Water, by definition, is limiting in deserts, but when you limit it even further, that's what makes this area so fragile. Well, so one of the species that people may identify with California deserts is the Joshua tree. Your work predicts a dire future for these trees. Talk about that. Even though there's Joshua trees throughout the park in many places where they've always been, what we were seeing is that in much of the park, there was no reproduction happening. There was no young Joshua trees coming in to replace the old ones as they just died of old age. In other parts of the park, there was plenty of young Joshua trees coming in. And it was really tied to rainfall or moisture and temperature and how those two uh, variables work together. Hmm. And the cooler, wetter areas were reproducing just fine. And the drier, hotter areas weren't. There was just a bunch of dried adult Joshua trees with no young ones coming in below them. And so it's like going into a community and all they have is senior centers, but there's no grade schools. Mm. And so what's the future of that community? So you lead hikes in the desert, creating a community of naturalists in the region. So what do you find is surprising to people as they get to know the desert better? Well, I think most people think of the desert as 
desolate, lifeless area. And as a result of that, I think people will not object to people damaging or doing whatever they want to the desert, where they would have very strong objections if you were to take them into the redwood forest or take them into a alpine meadow or something like that. So one of our objectives in developing these hikes and this community of naturalists is to develop a much deeper understanding of the amazing biological diversity of our deserts at some levels of measurement, much richer than the redwood forest and much richer than those alpine meadows. And it's not just a nature walk. We're, we're actually out there collecting data. And so they feel like they're making contributions. And, and I think that's one of the problems with climate change is the individual person doesn't feel like they can make a difference, which isn't true at all. But it's easy to think of this global problem that you have no way of impacting. And so if you have no way of impacting, we just won't deal with it. We won't think about it. I firmly believe, unfortunately for me, because I'm a scientist, that as much science as I throw at people isn't going to change their minds. And so what you have to do is say, this is how it's going to impact you. And so when I bring those people out in the desert and we look at animals and plants, they look at that and they say, that's what we're going to lose. And they don't want to lose that. And so they become advocates. All right. Well, Dr. Cameron Barrows, a research ecologist at the Center for Conservation Biology at UC Riverside. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Biological diversity is under threat in so many places, including California's forests, where climate change creates the conditions for fiercer, more damaging wildfires. In the last couple of years, a staggering 7 million acres burned in the state. Zeke Lunder has spent his career mapping wildfires. From North State Public Radio in Chico, Sarah Bohannon talked to him after the Dixie Fire devastated the mountain town of Greenville last August. Really what we're paying for with what we're seeing now is we're paying for all the mistakes that we've made since the gold rush, really. You know, starting with murdering all the native people. That huge loss of knowledge of how to live with fire is kind of foundational. And then you throw on top of that just all the historic logging that we did for over 100 years now and reforestation and lack of cleanup on those early burns, leading the burns that happened that changed the structure of the forest. There's just this kind of cascading effect of kind of errors we've made over the last 100 years that just keeps compounding. And now we're, it's not like you can turn that stuff off. And so we're kind of stuck with this landscape we have now. And here's Alex Cousins again, who works at the lumber mill in Trinity County up north. Now all of a sudden, everything's 100% burned. You have a limited amount of time to get in and cut those trees down before they go bad. And by bad, I mean they, they rot and they fall over and they're, they're not viable for timber. But even in that short time period, the bugs get in. It's uh, some sort of a wood-boring wasp that gets in. So the, the wood that's on the outer ring of that, that tree has that bug hole, and we can't sell that to somebody who's building a house. Even though there's no structural damage to that board, you know, when that bug hatches, it's going to fly through the drywall and land usually about Thanksgiving. It's going to land on your grandmother's, you know, sleep or something. And she's going to freak out because people don't want bugs in their wood. A little ways south of him in Mendocino, protesters have been active for decades trying to protect redwoods from logging, which they fear could worsen climate impacts on the trees. Alicia Bales is the program director at our member station there, KZYX. 
Now the community is trying to protect trees that are actually on public land at the Jackson Demonstration State Forest, which is a 50,000-acre state forest right in the heart of Mendocino County. And Daphne Martin is a neighbor, and she's active in protests against nearby logging efforts. I asked her how she responds when she hears that the trees are going to be cut. It's the same thing as when I see a friend being threatened, and I want to be out there immediately as fast as I can to be able to do what I can to stop it. Unfortunately, sometimes that means just witnessing it. It feels horrible to hear the saws and to smell the... When a tree is cut, there's a great big conifer fir smell, and uh, people say, oh, that's a great smell, and it's a smell of tree death, and it's... It's horrific to me. So why do these redwoods mean so much to the community? Well, for one thing, they're just beautiful. I mean, the redwoods are a a global treasure. People come from around the world to see them. And people who live in and among them and also who work in the woods, they treasure them. You know, they're part of the identity of this place, and we care deeply about them. Uh, It doesn't matter what side of the issue you are, and everybody loves the forest. Also, if you look back to longer history, these are the ancestral homelands of the northern Pobo and the coast Yuki people and their ancestors. And during the 19th century, uh, when the, the genocide of those peoples happened, taking the ancient trees was part of that. The white settlers came in and decimated this forest, and this was a cultural treasure for these peoples. To them, the whole ecosystem is a sacred site. It's a cultural treasure. It's a, it's a resource for their tribe to understand who it is and understand their history. So there's a lot of reasons why the forest is important uh, and means so much to the community. And I want to leave you with this story from Linda Perkins, who is uh, an elder here in Mendocino County, and she's lived here since 1978. And I think she really makes it clear what's at stake. When we got here, I realized that the same thing was happening to our redwoods that had happened to the longleaf pine of my childhood. It was being rapidly cut down. So I became involved, and I've been working on the issue, commenting on timber harvest plans, which are submitted to cut down the trees, going to the Board of Forestry, Uh, being involved in uh, nonviolent civil disobedience and direct action for about 30 years now. I'm now 81 years old, and I'm still at it because the trees still need our protection. Really beautiful. Well, KZYX Program Director Alicia Bales, thank you so much for these perspectives. Thanks, Carrie. Coming up... As long as we somewhat stay close to our mother, you know, the earth, she'll take care of us. You're listening to Climate Costs. Stay tuned.
You're listening to a California Newsroom special, Climate Costs, the High Price of Climate Change for California Communities. I'm Carrie Klein from KVPR in Fresno. Now to California's coastline, to crab fishermen in Monterey, a scientist in Santa Barbara trying to find a path forward, and to a community that has made the uncommon choice to pull back as the ocean rises, a policy of managed retreat. We begin in a small city on the Monterey coast, Marina, with Bruce Delgado, a botanist, and the mayor. We've already lost approximately 100 acres of our land to the ocean, and it's marching inland with the expanding oceans. And so we have to have a a very closely followed plan not to build in an area that we'll have to be retreating from in the future. So all of this infrastructure below ground and above ground that are near the coast now are planned for what we call a managed retreat, that they have to move inland, they have to move backward as the erosion moves forward. And then the new development has to be outside of that managed retreat zone. You know, once it gets above five feet of uh, sea level rise, I think right around 2100, we have residential neighborhoods. And that's, of course, the most tragic thing that we would ever lose. You know, the private and the public landowners agreed that, yeah, if the ocean is coming, they've got to retreat. And the only question was, what catalysts would we use to implement actions? And so we've come up with what we call triggers. And if those triggers come to pass, then we have to take certain actions. You know, all this stuff is going to be very expensive. And everyone's going to be competing against each other to get the same grants. And one result is it's going to be that there won't be enough grant money for everybody. And so it'll be one more source of pressure to force communities, big or small, to uh, find more sales tax, find more hotel tax. We have a city hall and a staff and I think a population that is devoted to our coastline. And what we have right now is pretty good, but there's going to be problems that we have to deal with as the uh, coast falls into the ocean. And so our focus is to address those issues and it would be folly to create more problems by building new development that has to then be taken out or have the kind of controversies uh, where private owners you know, don't want to retreat that other, other areas of the coast in California are having, you know, building seawalls is not a very reasonable approach for the long run. But there's an example where cities have their choices. They could saddle the future generations, they could cherry pick and take the easy route and leave the hard route for people that aren't even here yet, or we could take care of the mess that us and prior generations made and then the next generation can decide what land they want to use and how they want to use it. According to the California Ocean Protection Council, communities in the state spend more than $400 million each year to clean up plastics. When marine plastic breaks down, it releases greenhouse gases. Such microplastics also limit the ability of plankton to eat carbon dioxide. From KCLU in Thousand Oaks, Lance Orozco spoke to a researcher in Santa Barbara working on a way to limit the harm caused by our bottles, bags, and takeout containers. The plastic that makes its way into our oceans can stick around for decades, in fact, even hundreds of years. The process of breaking plastic down is helped by plastic-eating microbes. It led UC Santa Barbara marine microbiologist Allison Santoro to wonder, how can you help those microbes do their work faster? We have a couple ideas that we're throwing around. One is that we might potentially be able to coat 
the plastic or embed living cells inside the plastic that are already able to degrade the material. So that at the end of the product's life, the bacteria that can degrade the plastic are already there. The research team is also exploring adding nutrients to plastics that might speed up the process. They're starting work with plastics that oceanographers themselves put in the oceans, ocean sensors that measure things like temperature and salinity. It's actually more expensive to go back out and get them than it is to just leave them there. So lots of these sensors get deployed and then they never get recovered. And that's a really, really small part of the global plastic problem. But we figured that since we're oceanographers, that's the industry that we're going to start to work with. Centoro is confident the concept will work. The bigger questions involve the lifespan of the new plastics they're creating and whether more ocean-friendly plastics are a truly viable alternative. In Santa Barbara, I'm Lance Sorosco. Warming waters ripple onto California's shores and across our food chain. They've made life more uncertain for fishermen in the central part of the state. From member station KAZU in Monterey, Jeremiah Edding has this story about how the fishing industry is adapting. These are both my boats here, the Sea Harvester and the Sea Harvest 3. Calder Dyerly fishes out of Moss Landing Harbor, like his father and uncles. They're all in the business. He's fished his whole life for just about everything. Salmon and albacore and halibut and uh, anything else that swims around here close enough to catch. In the Monterey Bay and beyond, Dyerly also catches Dungeness crab. It's a hugely profitable $200 million a year fishery along the West Coast, and a holiday tradition in Central and Northern California. But for the last several years, the fishery has suffered a slew of climate change impacts that have made crustaceans less likely to show up for Thanksgiving. Toxic algae, whales tangled in fishing gear, and new regulations that have left fishers like Dyerly scrambling to adapt. At first it was a real head-scratcher. We were like, what are the factors in the perfect storm that is causing this? It all started with the blob. There's no stopping the blob. Not the blob from outer space, the ocean blob. A mass of warm water called a marine heat wave that grew to encompass thousands of miles of Pacific Ocean. It set off a complex chain of events that led to scores of humpback whales becoming entangled in crab fishing gear. And it was the marine heat wave. That's what did it. Warm water led to an outbreak of toxic algae, the kind that can make crab meat unfit to eat or sell. That delayed the crab season. When crab fishers finally got the go-ahead five months later... When everyone went hard and fished hard, and that's kind of what started the spike in entanglements. That was the perfect storm moment. Jared Santora is a fisheries ecologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says the warm waters helped put humpback whales in harm's way. The marine heat wave killed off tiny shrimp called krill. They're a favorite food of the whales. That sent humpback whales searching for anchovy, which they found closer to shore where fishers had put their crab pots. So the whole ecosystem was under stress. There was less food for whales. And then on top of that, the fishing community has to race to go out there and get whatever they can get to sustain themselves and their livelihood. Blobs of heat in ocean waters will become more common in the future due to climate change. According to scientists from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, over half of the world's oceans are already recording temperatures that were once considered extreme. But Santora says marine heat waves are hard to predict. That's are the effects on food webs or crab fishers. So yeah, you can have some warming, but is it going to translate into some sort of ecological or economic disaster? It's, it's a hard one to predict. Now everyone is looking for ways to prevent another rash of entanglements and also keep the crab fishery profitable. 
That's led to better communication between fishers, scientists, and managers. We're all looking more closely at the coastal ecosystem. It's been sliced up into a whole bunch of finer scale areas where they can look at the conditions to do a little bit more surgical sort of active management. That means opening and closing the season can shift abruptly year to year. And that's hard on fishermen like Dyerly. There's no really staying one step ahead, just being adaptable to whatever comes. And, you know, we've kind of lost our dependable year-long moneymaker. Even so, Dyerly hopes crab and other fisheries stay open so he can keep the family business going for the next generation. He and his wife have another baby on the way. For KAZU News, I'm Jeremiah Edding in Monterey. And I'm Rachel Showalter. I'm standing knee-deep in the Salinas River with a story about a mouthy mammal who's helping us better adapt to the impacts of climate change. Beavers are out here doing this for free. That's Emily Fairfax. She's a scientist who teaches at CSU Channel Islands and studies water systems. She says the riverbed we're standing in has been altered. It was once a dry and sandy piece of land. Now it's a productive wetland because beavers used mud and trees to build a dam and slow the flow of water. So like these plants here, this is all new Yeah. in the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. I mean, these ones have sprung up just since summer. The section of the Salinas I'm in is surrounded by reedy vegetation that's about as tall as I am. I can see tiny fish in the water because it's so clear. And Fairfax says all of this is because of beavers. Feel the water, feel how cool it is. When I was out here and it was like 105 degrees, the water was still about 70. It's remarkable how they can create such a stable system uh, in the middle of a very dramatically changing climate. Fairfax says beavers don't just bring back the wetland ecosystem. Their dams restore groundwater, and that helps combat drought. Moist vegetation in the wetland also forms a natural barrier to another threat of climate change, fires. When you have a lightning strike, when you have a campfire, when you have a power line, that's not going to turn into an out-of-control wildfire unless you have fuel. And fuel isn't really fuel unless it's dry. Beavers are native to California. Here on the central coast, they still swim in the Salinas, Arroyo Seco, and Santinez rivers. But Fairfax says development and agriculture have starved out almost all of California's wetlands and ideal habitat. There are beavers in downtown San Jose. There are beavers in San Diego. Those aren't really great places for the beavers. Partly because beavers can cause flooding, damage pipes, or chew up trees, Property owners can take steps to avoid that, but state law permits people to trap and kill thousands of the rodent-like mammals each year. But there's a lot that we can do today to make California more hospitable for beavers and to encourage this kind of thing in more of our rivers and streams. Fairfax says there's another idea, and people in other western states already do it. Take the family and you put it somewhere that wants it. Groups like the Environmental Protection Information Center and Worth a Dam, that's D-A-M, agree with Fairfax. They want to minimize lethal trapping and offer beavers protection. So we can reap these benefits and not have any of the issues and conflicts that come with it. Fish and wildlife officials acknowledge the climate benefits of beavers. They're considering whether to change trap and kill policies, but in San Luis Obispo County, killing beavers is rare. And I'll show you where they've been uh, chewing on a willow tree and dragging it into the river. Just, uh, looks like- Nick Fortune lives among trees like gray pines and oaks. He's retired from a lumber company and shares his land with beavers. That but that doesn't bother you at all? No, that you know, I got so many trees here that the balance between the trees and the beaver population is is fine. The beavers built a dam across the Salinas River under an old green bridge he's kept for decades. Mostly he sees the beavers as helpers. 
mean, San Luis County is kind of a coastal desert, and so this, you know, storing water in this county is great. If he can live with them, he hopes everyone else can too. Well, I think they should leave him alone. <laughs> Rachel Showalter brought us that story from KCBX in San Luis Obispo. Now we move from the Salinas River to the mountains north of San Francisco. Within the next two decades, all of California's electricity needs to come from renewable sources. That makes geothermal energy, energy from heat in the earth, more appealing. From Northern California Public Media, Greta Mart brings us to an area in Sonoma County that has been testing geothermal's potential for half a century. There are 15 different power plants scattered across the Mayacamas Mountains, north of San Francisco. This, below my feet, is the Clear Lake Volcanic Field, and it stretches below Sonoma and Lake Counties. Scattered under 45 square miles of rocky and rolling hillsides are pockets of heat and steam that start deep underground. It's known as the geysers, and Sonoma County Supervisor Linda Hopkins says this network of geothermal energy produces enough electricity to pretty much power from the Golden Gate uh, to the Oregon border. At this, the largest geothermal field in North America, heat radiating from the Earth's core rises through vents and bubbles through mud springs. So we can reach down, drill down, and mine the heat that's below us. In a company video, Calpine's Dave Jackson explains how the geysers has been so productive. We uh, inject water into the ground. That water hits the hot rocks, turns into steam, and then flows up to our turbines through our production wells. It's clean energy, but not self-sustaining. Production here peaked more than 30 years ago. And at a public meeting, Sonoma County Supervisor Linda Hopkins pointed out why. Power generation at the geysers is thirsty. And yet it's... You know, it has struggled with the amount of water that it uses, quite frankly. Public agencies from Lake County to Santa Rosa have been sending treated wastewater to keep turbines at Calpine's private plant turning. That's expensive, but Hopkins has hopes for a better way. And there is actually new technology um, which creates closed-loop systems and can also sort of operate on a much lower heat level but still generate that energy. New state mandates for clean power guarantee future demand for geothermal. That's why a nonprofit public energy provider called Sonoma Clean Power wants to add 500 megawatts of energy production here. Sonoma Clean Power's Jeff Cyphers says the first step is to establish a regional geozone. To send a signal to the marketplace and say, this is a region that is interested in geothermal development. And what we're trying to do is reinvigorate that industry. Sonoma County public officials, including Hopkins, want to help. They're backing research and development of new geothermal resources in the North Bay. Cypher says Sonoma Clean Power is investigating new technologies that use water more efficiently. And that means we can start looking at places outside of the traditional geysers area. That could boost geothermal energy in other parts of California in the years ahead. Reporting in Sonoma County, I'm Greta Mart. We began our show asking what the state might offer California communities as we face a warming climate. And as we've traveled around the state, we've arrived in places and heard from people who offer their own stories and ideas about what their communities can offer each other. Let me cross the fence over here. Maybe this might be a good place to talk about climate change because it shows how dry it is. And so we end here in the Owens Valley on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. My name is Monty Bengochia. I live on the Bishop Paiute Reservation. 
Bishop, California, Inyo County, USA. I was born here in 1951. People are starting to realize that the indigenous were taking care of the landscape through these uh, cultural burns that would take care of the kind of plant life they desired as in food, basket material, uh, maybe for hunting, you know. There's a lot of work out there now to, to give the Indian people a little bit of credit for their stewardship practices. We had that fire that just went through, they called the airport fire about maybe three weeks ago. And so I went down to check it out. I was really kind of amazed because I didn't realize that but few native trees such as the black willow and uh, the cottonwood, how there really wasn't that much tree life down there on the just north of Big Pine or even, or even uh, the whole Owens River uh, drainage where the fire went through. It just followed along the, the Owens River uh, corridor. You can start to really realize that life is drying up, is, is dying. I have an instinctive feeling that indigenous will make it, will survive. I guess we've been here for thousands of years, even far longer than the Western anthropologists, archeologists claim uh, we've been here. And, and I just figure that as long as we somewhat stay close to our mother, you know, the earth, that she'll take care of us. I'm Carrie Klein from KVPR in Fresno. Our special was produced by the California Newsroom Collaboration. Thanks to all of the stations in that collaboration who worked with us. Madi Bolaños and Kathleen Schock brought us additional tape. And thanks to Adriana Torres, Olivia Rodriguez, and Rosa Gonzalez for work in the Eastern Coachella Valley. Our show was engineered by Chris Hoff with KQED, and Molly Peterson and Adrian Hill were our executive producers. Thank you.